But we have a lot of new faces with us this morning. So at Grace, we've been working our way through the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And we've been looking at the life of Joseph. And in particular, over the past few weeks, we've been seeing the uh, reconciling nature of God's grace as he brings the family back together. And Genesis 46 is a pivotal chapter for the history of Israel. And it's quite a unique chapter, and so we have some interesting things to navigate through this morning. But before we get to the word, I want to just begin with a simple lesson on one of the most crucial aspects of biblical interpretation. And it's what we call context. Now, in regards to the Bible, there are three basic types of context. First, we have what we would call literary context which at a simple understanding is interpreting a word within a verse, interpreting a verse within a paragraph, a paragraph within a chapter, and a chapter within a book. So in other words, in order for us to understand what one verse is saying, we need to understand what the paragraph is saying. In order for us to understand what the paragraph or section is saying, we need to understand the chapter and the whole book. That's keeping it in context. The second type of context is called historical context, which is simply put, the point in history which you find the passage addressing or taking place. And the final type of context is what is called redemptive historical context, which is the passage's place within the entire narrative of redemptive history in the whole of the Bible. Church, the Bible is a story of redemptive history. God creates the world good. Man falls into sin. God promises a savior. God brings a savior. God redeems and reconciles man. And God's promises to return and make all things new. That's redemptive history. And so we always think of that context as well when we study. Now sometimes there's a particular amount of help that comes from thinking through one or more of these types of context depending on the passage. For instance, if you remember back when we studied Genesis 38, literary context and redemptive historical context are vitally important for understanding why Moses takes a break from the life of Joseph to focus in on Judah. If you look at it from a literary context, Judah's sin and infidelity is contrasted with the next chapter of Joseph's fidelity, heightening what we're supposed to see in that. If you look at it from a redemptive historical context, you understand that Judah is vitally important to the story of Genesis because he is the one through whom the Messiah will come. So we need to see Judah repent and be restored to a right relationship with God. I believe our passage in Genesis 46 today finds a particular help in regular historical context. Now with that said, historical context in narrative passages functions in two aspects, has two aspects to it. First is the history during the story itself. So for instance, the history of what is happening during the life of Joseph. Things like the famine of seven years. Things like Israel being in the promised land of Canaan before they go to Egypt. 
Things like the Egyptians finding it to be an abomination to eat with Hebrews. Those things are a part of the historical context of the story and how it's taking place. But there's another aspect that we have to consider, and that's the context in which we find the original recipients of the letter. So for Genesis, that would be where in history Israel is when they first receive the book of Genesis. Now we don't know the exact time frame of when Genesis was written, but if you believe it to be written by Moses, which traditional view is of that, and I I would say that's correct, Genesis would have to have been compiled sometime after the exodus from Egypt, but before entrance into the promised land because Moses didn't go into the promised land. So you see, that gives us a general idea of that type of context to keep in mind as we read through our text. Israel has just come out of Egypt after 400 years, and they're following Moses to the promised land when they receive the words that we will read in Genesis 46. Keep that in mind because we'll see why that's important to our story. So with that introduction, let's dive into the word. We're gonna break this up into two sections and our first section will be covering Genesis 46, one through 27 where we're going to see Israel exercising faith and the assurance of God's promise. Notice the initial exercise of faith of Jacob in verse one. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. When we looked at the end of Genesis 45 last week, we saw Jacob go from disbelief to belief, and his spirit being revived because he heard all the words of Joseph and he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent. And if you remember, this meant that Jacob heard of God's providence over Joseph's life. He heard of his son's sin in selling him to slavery, and he heard of Joseph now exalted in Egypt. And so he says at the end of chapter 45, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And now in 46, we see that he is set out on his journey to Egypt. But there's some important things that we need to keep in mind to understand what's taking place here that we would have seen through a study of Genesis. One is to recognize how significant the move was for Israel to make. Now we may not remember, but in Genesis 26 2, as God repeats the promise of Abraham to Jacob's father Isaac, he specifically tells Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I should tell you. So Isaac was forbidden by God to go to Egypt, and Jacob's family is currently leaving the promised land to go to Egypt. Yet, as we've seen in the last chapter, Joseph had reason to believe the Lord was calling them there. I would imagine that he had remembered Joseph's dreams as he heard of God's providence over Joseph's life, making him the ruler of Egypt. 
I think he knew the command of God for Isaac to dwell in the land of Canaan. And yet he heard the exaltation of Joseph and Joseph inviting them to Egypt and he sees the provision in the famine and he longed deeply to see his son. So let me ask you, what would you do in this moment? How would you make the decision of what to do? Would you get out a piece of paper and write out a pros and a cons list? Would you go and talk to all your friends and get their counsel? Would you pull up a spreadsheet if you're financially driven and say, okay, here's the numbers that I have over here and here? Or would you just go with your gut instinct that you wanna see your son and it all looks good and you move? You see, what we see though is we see Israel do something that provides us with a great lesson in seeking wisdom as we face significant decisions in our life. Look again at verse one. Notice what Israel does. He came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now there's great significance with him coming to Beersheba. It was the place where the Lord met Isaac at the end of Genesis 26 and renewed his covenant with him. It was also the place where Isaac built an altar and called upon the Lord. So we see that Jacob is seeking the Lord. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner comments, the place and the character of Jacob's worship indicate his frame of mind. For Beersheba had been Isaac's chief sinner in addressing God as the God of his father. And he was acknowledging the family calling and implicitly seeking leave to move out of Canaan. Many commentators also suggest that the language here signifies that Jacob was offering peace offerings, which would have been offered in thanksgiving to God for his gracious gifts. So first this shows that the revival that we saw in Jacob's heart at the end of, verse 45, of chapter 45 is a revival of faith in God. Jacob comes to God and he is thankful to God for keeping Joseph alive. But he also acknowledges his dependence on God for the way forward. You see, Israel refuses to rely on his perception or his feelings for Joseph but he seeks to worship God and place him in his fatherly hand. Is that how you approach major decisions in your life? Do you seek to worship God and place yourself in his wisdom? Jacob shows us a great deal of wisdom here. Next, notice then the assurance of God's promise in verses two through four. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now there are several things to consider here. First, consider the twice repeated name, Jacob. Could it be that God is acknowledging Jacob's weakness in the use of this name? 
You remember, he's the one that changed Jacob's name to Israel. Could he be acknowledging Jacob's weakness to bolster him with his strength, with his promise? Next, consider the way God introduces himself to Jacob in verse three. He says, I am El, which means the mighty one, the God of your father. You see, he meets Jacob in Beersheba and assures him that he is the mighty God of Isaac. There is so much love and care seen in this disclosure, I think. God comes to him and says, I am the mighty God, the God of your father. And then, consider how he assures Jacob not to fear going down to Egypt. Look at what he says again in verse three. He says, do not be afraid, for there I will make you into a great nation. For there I will make you into a great nation. You see what God's doing. God is repeating the promise that he gave to Abraham and the promise that he gave to Isaac of making Israel into a great nation, but he's saying that it is in Egypt that I will make you into a great nation. So don't fear going down there. Fourth, consider that God promises to go with Israel into Egypt and bring Israel out of Egypt in verse four. And fifth and finally, consider how God promises that Jacob will see Joseph and Joseph will close his eyes. In other words, Joseph will be there as Jacob dies. Now, did you see the wonderful nuance of God's promise in verses four through five? Look back again at verse four and and think about what this means when we know that Jacob will die in Egypt. God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. Do you see the beauty in this church? Jacob will die in Egypt. So who is God gonna bring up again out of Egypt? Israel, not Jacob. So we see that this part of the assurance of God's promise is not mainly for Jacob. It's for the people of Israel to know that he will go down with them into Egypt and he will bring them back up again. And think again about when they are reading this for the first time after they have come out of Egypt. Do you see what this is showing God's people? It's showing that God was always with his people in Egypt. And he was always being true to his promises. And when we combine this with the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, where God tells Abraham that his offspring will be sojourners and servants in a land for 400 years before coming back to the promised land, we see that in the great providence of God. He sent Israel to Egypt. He made them into a great nation in Egypt, and he brought them out. Everything that happened in Egypt was a part of his hand. Everything. Their growth as a nation, their slavery, everything was a part of God's plan. 
Church, do you see the assurance that we have of God's promises? Do you see how firm they are fixed in his word? Jacob had assurance to go down into Egypt at this moment. Israel has assurance that that was God's plan all along as they're coming out of Egypt. And we have assurance that that same God will keep his promises to us. We could stop here and think on this for quite some time. But there's more to our story. Look now with me at the exercise of faith by the people of Israel and what Moses is revealing through it in verses 5 through 27. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamu. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Pananaram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Irai, Arodai, and Arelai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvai, Bariah, who is Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, I know the first thing you're thinking, is he really going to preach on all of those names? (laughs) I think I was lucky enough to read them. (laughs) Not in detail, but it is important to read through these sections, and there's important things for us to pull out of them, I think. 
Look at how Moses starts off in verse five, saying the sons of Israel. Now this phrase has been used only a few times in Genesis, but it will go on to be used over 600 times in the Bible to refer to the people of Israel. Notice as well how Moses repeats that Jacob brought all of his offspring with him into Egypt. Then as we consider the names, we notice a few things of possible importance. One being that it is the list of every tribe of Israel. You see, this is valuable for the people of Israel because they would identify themselves with these tribes. And to know that all the tribes came into Egypt could be significant. Another thing might be the detail given if one of Jacob's grandsons named Shaul in verse 10, did you notice what it said? The son of a Canaanite woman. Could this be Moses showing how one of Jacob's sons has mixed with a Canaanite woman, which is often seen as a sin in scripture? We also have numbers given which show Leah and Rachel's children as double their servants and add up to 70 people in total. There's a lot of details here that bring little pockets of information to the people of Israel, but I think the main point that Moses is showing is that God has begun to make a nation from Abraham. Abraham had one child, two child, two children, but one of promise. But also that the relatively small number of Israelites who went into Egypt, compared to the massive amount that comes out of Egypt, reveals that God did indeed keep his promise to make Israel a great nation in Egypt. The words of Deuteronomy 7.7 resound when we think of this comparison. Moses tells the people of Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You see, church, we see that God set his love on Israel. God chose to make them into a great nation and he chose to do so in Egypt. And as we see them exercise faith in God's promises and we know that those promises were fulfilled, we are assured as well that he will always, 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 always be faithful to his word. It's a beautiful picture of God's goodness and wisdom. And this brings us to our final section in verses 28 through 34. Here we see provisions made for Israel. Look at how our section begins in verses 28 through 30. He, being Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. I think there's quite a bit of beautiful things taking place in these verses. 
Judah is once again seen as the head of the family, now going before them to meet Joseph. Fully restored, the one through whom the Lion of Judah would come. Joseph is seen meeting his father in his glory. The idea of preparing a chariot display coming to his father in power and in grace. Joseph and Israel are also reunited. And Joseph weeps on Israel's neck for a good while. If you pause to think about it, it's such a moving scene of love and grace and mercy and reconciliation once again. And then we see Israel ready to die now in peace instead of in mourning as he sees Joseph's face. See, I think there are sweet echoes of this scene in Luke 2, 29 through 30. When Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, Israel looks on Joseph and is at peace as he sees the savior of the people of Israel. Simeon looks on the baby Jesus Christ and is at peace as he sees the savior of the world. beautiful scene before us. But now look, look at how precise Joseph is with his instructions in verses 31 through 34. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Joseph first describes in detail what he's going to say to Pharaoh. I'm going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to tell them, you're shepherds, and you've brought all your flocks with you. Then Moses repeats this as Joseph tells his brothers precisely what to say to Pharaoh. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say you have been shepherds from your youth, and you have brought all your livestock with you. Why? Did you notice the purpose for all of this? In verse four, or verse, what is that? 34. (laughs) In verse 34, in order that, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for, because, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You see, the first goal of Joseph is to get the family to dwell in Goshen. Goshen was a part of Egypt which bordered the promised land of Canaan, located on the eastern part of the Nile Delta. It was a land fertile for agriculture and livestock to graze. It was also a land far enough from the center of Egyptian society to keep the Hebrews separated. Furthermore, we see that the second reason is because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
Now just think about this for a moment. If you are moving your family to a foreign land among foreign people, the last thing you would do is mention that your entire family's trade of choice is something that will make them an abomination to the people that they're living around. Your family would be outcasts. They would be seen as disgusting and loathsome. That's what that word means. It's not the way you set your family up for success in a new culture. However, what we see is it's precisely what Joseph wants to do because it's precisely how God wants to provide for Israel and keep them separate. You see, they're placed on the outskirts of society and will be known as people whose lifestyle is an abomination to the Egyptians. There will be no attempt from Pharaoh to integrate them into Egyptian society. Oh, church, do you see God's providence on display again, protecting Israel from mixing with the pagan people of Egypt and placing them in the perfect position for them to grow again, to grow as a nation and head back to the promised land. If you read the rest of the Bible, Israel's history is going to show a proclivity to intermingle with the Gentile nations to their detriment. Had Israel remained in Canaan, as Jacob's grandson Shaul may reveal, they could have easily been absorbed into Gentile pagan customs and practice. In Egypt, though, Israel was intentionally isolated, which, as Thomas Constable suggests, resulted in the Israelites living separate from the Egyptians, where they increased and developed a distinct national identity and vocation as God had promised. You see, from this moment in Israel's history, this beautiful chapter in Genesis, we are left to marvel at the wisdom of God in bringing Israel into Egypt, separating them as a people for his own possession and bringing them out. All a part of his plan. All for their good. Now we've seen some things to take away in the wisdom of Jacob or Joseph but I think the main point of this passage exists in the historical context of the recipients of this story. The nation of Israel has just completed 400 years of life in Egypt. They have suffered terribly at the hands of a cruel pharaoh, been miraculously brought out of Egypt by the hand of God, seen the sea stand up, as they crossed on dry land and seen a cloud guide them by day and fire by night. And somewhere in between their extended life in the wilderness and before entering the promised land, they received this written history of their nation. And they hear of the plan and purpose of God in all of that. And they look around them and they see this great nation that God has made and their distinction among the peoples of the earth and they're left to see nothing but the loving wisdom of God in everything. You see, the nation of Israel is shown a different way of viewing their history, a new lens to look through it, if you will. And we, by extension, are given the same lens. 
we should see God's promises and love for his people are always full of wisdom. Often, our circumstances make it hard to see God working all things together for our good. It makes it hard to trust God's wisdom. Jacob was undoubtedly curious about how God would fulfill his promise by taking them out of the promised land. Israel will continue to struggle to trust God to fulfill his promises throughout their history. Yet what we consistently see through the pages of scripture is that God is infinitely more wise than we are. And he is infinitely more loving in that wisdom than we could ever imagine. It's interesting that later in Israel's history, God will send the Isaiah prophet, Isaiah the prophet, to prophesy of another exile, this time because of Israel's stubbornness. And it will be in Babylon, 70 years. And in the middle of that prophecy, in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, God will say this to Israel. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Everything works together to the counsel of God's will. Israel was told of this God from their history and how they came up out of Egypt, and they're reminded of him by the prophet Isaiah. Those of us who are in Christ now stand in this heritage. Church, this is our history because this is our God. This is our God. This is our God. The one who declares the end from the beginning the one who accomplishes all his purposes, this is our God. In his devotional commentary, W.H. Griffith Thomas says it well. What a call for unbroken and enthusiastic faith. Let us trust where we cannot trace. Let us rest our hearts upon the wisdom of God's love. And if you are here this morning and you have not yet known the love of God in Christ Jesus, know that what we sung about earlier is 100% true. Know that what we remembered when we took of the bread and the juice is 100% true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to die on the cross for the sins of his people. And he is calling, as we see in this room, he is calling a people, his chosen people, from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Trust in his name. Trust in his power to save. And know that if you do trust in Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Israel will work for you with infinitely wise love.
please stand with me as I pray this over us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are holy, holy, holy. Lord, teach us from your word who you are. Give us hearts to believe in your promises. Help us in our doubts to see your goodness. Help us to trust what we cannot trace. Help us to have faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.